0: Heavenly Father, each Sabbath morning as we gather as a community, we thank you, Lord, for that privilege and that moment when your Spirit takes our heart and pounds us hard, Lord, to tell us, open our souls to the Word to be received, to transform us. And God, I ask you for that hard Word to take us to a place, a place where we are receptive a place where we will listen, and a place where we will respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Aside from the beautiful reading that Robin just shared of Matthew 28, uh, 1-10, to I wonder if you, maybe if you hadn't read The Daily Walk, are wondering as well um, whether this is in fact the right passage. Did someone choose the wrong passage this morning? That's going through your head, right? Um, because uh, I, I'm pretty sure we were in the middle of a Christmas series, right? Um, and uh, isn't it called, what child is this? And uh, weren't we supposed to be looking at nativity passages and Matthew and Luke? And I, I'm pretty sure that I heard somebody mention that the introduction was going to do this. And we were looking at all this kind of stuff. And yet, we're looking at Matthew 28, 1 to 10, which is often held around Easter, and, uh, and so it doesn't seem to fit, and so maybe, maybe that was a glitch. Uh, that's what you're thinking, or, or you're thinking there's got to be some kind of connection here, but you're not quite sure exactly how it's connected. But I, I, I really do think that it really is connected deeply to this passage and deeply to the story of Christmas. In fact, I'm looking forward to next Christmas, because I'm thinking as well of next Christmas, because next Christmas, the passages that we're going to look at are found in Hebrews, and in Revelation, and in Romans. And and then one year, I'm hoping that we're gonna do an entire Christmas series on the book of Exodus. It'll be fantastic, it's gonna be really, really good. Uh, Because the book of Exodus, we're gonna be able to look at Jesus rescuing us, and how he redeems us, and how he calls us, and the triangle relationship between Pharaoh, and Moses, and Jesus. It's brilliant, it's really, really good. And I think it actually fits into Christmas really, really well, because every single passage in the Bible will always bring you to Jesus. Right? And you're saying, that can't be true. Right? Wouldn't you say that? Or do you think that every passage does? I, I, I like this response. It's this very good. It's very good. I can see that you guys are really awake this morning. Uh, All okay, right, let's see this, let's see. Does every passage in the Bible bring you to Jesus? Hmm. Even the, uh, the tent peg uh, in the head, you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That was, that was a little suspicious, that one. <laughs> uh, but every other passage brings us to Jesus. <laughs> you sure? I mean, of course it brings you to Jesus. Even the tent peg in the head, it really does. If you read the context of the story, if you read the thread of the story, if you understand what it's all about, if you start to understand that God had called a great prophet, this woman, if you understand that the story is that God is not afraid of the reality of the story, and he says, I call this woman together, he raised the prophet, he anointed her, he ordained her, and he said that he sent her forward, and as a result of this, there was 40 years of peace in Israel, in the land for that. And because of this, there was this battle that took place, and yes, the tent peg was placed inside the head, it was a bit brutal inside there, but there was victory taking place because this woman, Deborah received the ordination, received the blessing from God, and followed the Word of God, and there was peace in the land inside there. And yes, you can find God in every single passage if you are looking for God. It's fantastic. So, to learn these deep lessons through hard stories is very important. And I'm thankful thankful that the Bible is honest. There are many historical books especially very old historical books that are very one-sided. They only share a a kind of a glorious history. Um, They describe only one facet of history. They don't want to tell you the gritty, poor side of history. They only want to tell you a portion of it. Uh, They don't want to tell you that they lost all the battles. They only want to tell you the battles that they won, right? Whereas in the Bible, you see it all because God is saying, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to just lay it all out there. And inside the midst of that truth, you'll see God interacting and living inside there. As I said, I saw my parents last week uh, in England, uh, and uh, my father brought out uh, this few files, these folders of files, and I didn't know he had these folders of files. And he said, hey, look, you know, you should, uh, you should have a look through these things and see what things you want to keep. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I started leafing through all these files of folders, and, uh, and as I was looking through there, I, I didn't realize that he had kept... Since I was a little child, you know, uh, every school report that I ever had, uh, photos and uh, newspaper clippings of me losing a race and uh, <laughs> things like that, you know, you know, memories that maybe you shouldn't have kept. And so <laughs> it was just like everything, you know, I know, I, mean, I never entered the race. And so. <laughs> He kept all these pictures and all these wonderful things and, uh, and all sorts of stuff, including, you know, all the way through to my very first year of college. He, he even had some of my folders from my very first classes at college. And I, I didn't understand, because uh, I studied Newball College in England, but it was uh, an American degree from Andrews University. And so I didn't understand what 100, 200, 300, 400 meant. Um, and so my very first quarter, I took a 400-level Hebrew class. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I like Hebrew. (laughs) Let's just dive into that. And now I'm like, oh, maybe a 100 level would have been a better choice at the first freshman quarter. But you know, and I was the kind of student who would uh, take notes in class and then go home and then rewrite all my notes again in calligraphy. Um, And so I have like all of my notes. They they look brilliant. They did not reflect in my grades. they looked good and so uh, they're they're kind of a piece of art Um, and uh, it's probably because I spent days rewriting the notes and uh, you know every line and the fountain pen and the feather and so no it was was that kind of stuff but as I was looking through all my school report cards right from when I was seven years old eight nine ten I I noticed a common thread that was appearing inside there and uh, it was kind of an interesting thread, and I'll share that in a second. And, and then I noticed that in England, when you're 13 years old, it reminded me of this, they, they kind of funnel you, right? They, they kind of help you to decide your entire life when you're 13. Because um, the way the educational system works is that when you're 13, you have to choose the subjects, the 10 subjects you're going to choose when you're 14, and you'll study. So from the ages of 14 to 16, you will focus on on 10 subjects, right? And that's what happens from 14 to 16. So when you're 13, you have to choose what these 10 subjects are. And then from 16 to 18, you'll narrow these down to two to four subjects only. That's all you'll study. And then when you're 18, you will know the one single subject at university that you will study. Because it's just, it's just funneled you. You'll have no choice. Uh, you will not be able to go study anything else at that point. If you wanted to go back at, 18 and study something else, you would have to go back and study something else for another couple of years to refocus that. Now, it may have changed in the last 20 years, but it is England, so I doubt it. Um, once established, the sun still doesn't set in the empire, um, and so, at least we'd like to believe so. Well, when I was 13, though, I, I looked at these 10 subjects, and they would predict your grades, and this is the way they helped you to choose your 10 subjects. So I was sitting down with Jonah and I was saying, hey, Jonah, why don't you come and look at uh, what they predicted my grades would be and how they helped me to choose my 10 subjects between the ages of 14 and 16. And so Jonah was looking at all my subjects because when you're younger, you choose every single subject. And he saw the word physics and he saw that my predicted grade for physics was E. And he said, dad, what's, what's E? Said well, my son, in England, uh, the grades go from A to G, um, and then they have a U after that for undecipherable. Um, <laughs> and so uh, they had all this really long range of grades, and then there was like, oh my goodness, give him a U, <laughs> just let that child disappear. So whereas, uh, so I knew. Science was not going to be, physics was not going to be particularly the subject that I should focus on. Whereas religious studies, religious studies, world religions, I had an A. Hey, uh-huh. Maybe there was a clue of where I should focus my attention on. And then there, was, uh, there were comments that my teachers would write uh, every year. Uh, different schools that I went to, teachers in different parts of London, and uh, they would write these comments. And uh, this is what my teachers would say. They would say, does not need any coaxing, uh, coaxing to participate in class discussions. <laughs> huh That's really good, And they would end it with this other sentence, even when class discussions are not required. <laughs> I was like, really, yeah, yeah. was that necessary? Uh, you know Sandy, do you, do you have to say that about i mean I mean I mean seriously Yes. And I, I would like to say on record that I blame my mother. I do. I do. Uh, one day she will visit and uh, then you can blame her too. Um, and you will understand because if you think I speak a lot, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You think I speak fast? Oh my. And when my mom speaks French, oh my goodness. I'm like, oh. And she starts and, and it's off. And he goes from French to Portuguese to English. I, I have lost I've lost track. And it's just it's gone. And when the family gets together, it's like a it's like a confusion of 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 joy and, and complex joy and then and then food arrives. <gasps> it's it's intense. And so, you know, we start to understand that the DNA is passed on to us, right? Because in part we are part of our parents. So you may not like your mom and dad sometimes. You may like, I hate my mom, I hate my dad. You are your mom and dad. (laughs) You may like, I just, I will never be like my mom, I will never be like my dad. You are your mom and dad. As you get older, you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I am. My dad, my dad has this uh, very particular scent of smell, um, so he notices scents really well. And when I was a child, he he just like he'd walk around and he'd do this thing, it was very irritating. He was just like I'm like, what, What's the matter with you? Is there something wrong with your nose? He'd just like he'd be smelling things. I caught myself doing this. And I thought it was disgusting. I was like, Are you like some kind of barbarian? And then the other day I saw myself doing this, and I was like, What's the matter with me? And I've always felt like the dishes, they smell weird. And I'm like there's something about my smell that like, I have it. And so I, I'm very particular about smell. And like now I know my father, I blame him for this. And I, I you know, now I understand where it comes from. So we, we understand this, that we're all part of this. So you understand that Jesus and who he was came from his mother as well. Hmm? You're like, what? Is that possible that Jesus was human? and that he was shaped by his mom, that God chose Mary because of all the qualities that she had, he wanted that infused in his son as well, that he would carry through, that he would, she would nurture and develop Jesus as a child. Now, Protestants like us are starting to become a little bit uncomfortable right now. They're like, I don't know, I don't know. Is he going to suggest we worship Mary now? I don't know. I don't really like the way the message is going. This feels very, very Catholic. Did he say we are supposed to like Mary? I think we should talk about another subject. Steady on. There's a long sermon still coming. <laughs> the Bible's got more to share. Look, let's take, a, let's take another character so you don't have to like panic straight away. All right? And then we'll come back to my hypothesis and then you'll believe. Moses. We love Moses. He was captured as a baby, you know, in the tall grass by some Hebrew servants. Those Hebrew servants happened to be his mother and his sister. Think about the complexity, right? Just the complexity and the timing of that mission, Operation Capture Baby Moses. I mean, how they worked it out to be able to capture baby Moses. I mean, that was just one story on its own, right? but we love how he is shaped by his sister and his mother. We love how he understands his heritage. We love that he understands his legacy and his call. There has to be a reason, right, that Moses, when he sees the Egyptian beating up that Hebrew slave, that he must say, no, even though I'm an Egyptian, I kind of understand my Hebrew heritage. I understand this is wrong. And he defeats the Egyptian soldier, kills him. Perhaps Moses is thinking, I will use the Egyptian strategy and I will release the people, my Hebrew people from slavery some way, because that's what he did. He thought he was gonna do. Little did he know that all that his mother had taught him, that God was gonna water that out in the wilderness was going to grow that in him, plant it out there. And that one day, this leader Moses was going to walk the Hebrew children out of Egypt. Not by any strategy of his own. (laughs) He was just going to walk them out of Egypt because he would trust God. But Moses had to learn that. He had to come somewhere and he had to understand where his bigger picture came from. So our parents, our parents have tremendous influence on everything we are. And each parent, by the way, has a unique influence on us. Fathers bring a specific blessing to shaping children, and mothers bring a specific blessing to shaping children as well. So you have gotta understand that there are different dynamics inside this. This is why single parents um, have a particular way of bringing up kids and we need aunts and uncles and community and church to be able to do this. This is why when I do a, a baby dedication or a child dedication, I will always say it is not just the, the parents up here that are taking care of that child, right? It is not the 1950s onwards nuclear family model of family that we have. It is us, a church family. We're all responsible for bringing up each other's kids. We look after each other. We, we take an interest in seeing how each other's kids are growing up. And we love each other's kids because that's how we grow. Did you know that sons, boys, right, who engage in the conversation, where do babies come from, right? uh, You know what that is, right? Just checking, I know we don't talk about sex from the pulpit or at dinner time, but where do babies come from, right? Sons who engage in this conversation with their mothers in addition to their fathers, but with their mothers, actually have a healthier attitude than if they just talk about it with their fathers. It is important to hear a feminine side of where babies come from, right? Did you know that parents play with their children differently? One will encourage more competition, and the other one will encourage, actually, let's be fair about this. The other one's like, no, beat the kid up. <laughs> One will encourage independence and one will encourage security inside there. Did you know that parents communicate differently? One will encourage more body language. One will actually encourage less body language. One will be more direct. One will be more non-direct about it. I tell you this because I think it's very important for us to understand that as we grow in this, people understand that we are constantly learning differently and we handle all of this differently. But while we can handle all this, as parents, we grow up, we know that we as parents are able to handle things differently than our children can. I handle the way people levy things to me differently. Ah, this week on Thursday morning, I was driving along, and dropped, I had a breakfast appointment on Pearl Street, I dropped the guy off at uh, like eight o'clock, and as I dropped the guy off uh, Pearl Street, I, there was no traffic on the road, two lanes, and I put my hazard lights on so that the the, the person could stop, and this car came behind me. And the car could have pulled over to the other lane, but no, no, no. They came right behind me, and they placed their hand on the horn, and they did not let go. And it was like, ah, like this, right? Then they raised their finger, the other one. <laughs> and so you know what that is? Uh huh. And so, and they raised their finger, and the horn's going on. So I thought, I'll see how long this lasts. (laughs) Why not? I mean, I'm in no rush. So I looked in the mirror, and she just laid on the horn. I was like, listen, there's no other cars on the road. Go around me. So the guest, you know, that I was talking to, he stands on the side. He starts texting me. Well, she seems pretty bad, upset. I'm like, I'm like. Yeah, I know, she must be having a bad day. Yeah, I know, we're and back and forth, the horn's still going, right? I'm like, people just, and I, I can deal with this kind of stuff, right? But when people hurt my children, it's different. When people hurt my children because they want to hurt me, that's different. When people want to send me a message because they're upset with me and so they do something to my kids because they know they have power over my kids, that's different. And that's hard. The other day I was flying back somewhere and uh, it was an early morning flight and the cabin was dark and somebody had done something to my kids and... um, so I can cry, nobody can see, and I'm mad. I'm texting Becky on the plane, and I'm just like, I'm mad. I'm upset. This is different. Because we were created, right? We were created to love, and we were created to protect. We were created to give. And the thing is that our kids don't even know that something bad has happened to them. They don't even know that they are being hurt to send a message to me, right? They don't know that they're being abused or used. And so it's difficult because you want to go and address this kind of stuff. So now imagine that you were merry. Hmm? Imagine you were Mary. And your son was Jesus. And your son was Jesus, and you knew that God had called you to this, that God had laid this down on you. And you know what's kind of laying ahead, but you don't really know what's laying ahead. And you wanna rescue your son, but you can't always rescue your son. I mean, it's a different scale altogether. It's a lot to carry. I don't think we often think about what she must have had to go through, right? To be the mother, to be the person who has to carry all of that. For those of us who are parents, we know what it's like to see our kids suffer and to not be able to do anything about it. And just to watch them. And just to think to ourselves, I would trade myself any day any time than have them suffer. And I wonder how many times Mary felt the same way. If she could have traded herself for Jesus. I wonder how many times God the Father wanted to trade himself for Jesus. How many times the Spirit wanted to trade himself. How many times the angels in heaven would have traded themselves instead of Jesus. The complexity when you love someone and you see them suffer and you have to watch it and you can't do anything. It's deep. It's deep. In the Bible, there are 15 passages that talk about Mary or allude to Mary, right? 15 passages in the Gospels. And I looked through all of these passages to try and understand what her journey was and how people connected to her how they perceived her, how she saw her life, and how she saw the life that she had with Jesus Christ. And I narrowed these down because some of them speak directly to what child is. I mean, which one speaks specifically more broadly about who Jesus Christ is. I narrowed them down to five. I'm gonna just address these five. The first two of these are spirit and affirmation. We've already talked about these, so I'm not gonna talk about them today because I mentioned them in sermons already the last two weeks. When we talk about spirit, Mary understood what it is. When she received the Holy Spirit, talked to her. When she met a cousin and her, that Jesus moved and John the Baptist moved and she felt the spirit of God. And the affirmation of that with the shepherd saying, hey, this is the Messiah. We see it. And, and she treasured this in her heart, right? But there are three other great ones that took place. And that's what we're going to look at today. There's the purpose. When she was looking for Jesus in the temple, there's the mission with the wedding at Cana. And there's the family in that final weekend, that final weekend where you've got the cross and you have the resurrection. So question number one, actually, does anybody have some tissue? Uh, Just a Kleenex would be helpful for me. And I'm not fussy about the brand. (laughs) And then Matt, I'll probably need you to mute my microphone at that time as well. Thank you. Actually, could I have another breath now? That's great. If I could just mute my mic. That's great. Much better. All right. I have done that before and forgot to mute my mic. Uh, That's awkward. Awkward. Always awkward. All right. So let's go with the first question here. First question inside your worship guide. Uh, And if you turn in your worship guides, you'll see this. It's actually an open one How does Jesus give you purpose in your life? And this is really important. It's an important question for Mary. It's an important question that Jesus had to wrestle through. It's an important question for us at Christmas time here. How does Jesus give you purpose in your life? At the age of 12, back at Jesus' time, right, boys had a few options before them. Boys had a few options before them. First, if they were the tribe of Levi, right, if they were the tribe of Levi, they could be trained as a priest. They would go to Jerusalem, and they would learn all the rituals in the temple, and they would be taken there, and they would learn how to function in the temple, and by the time they were 30, they would be ordained, when they were 30, they would learn to become a priest, and it would be a beautiful life they would lead, and it would be a great tradition inside there. Boys, number two, boys could actually become scribes. They would actually stay in a village, or they would choose a scribe at Jerusalem, And this is kind of like they would go to school and say, I like Sean and Sean's gonna be my senior master scribe and I would go learn with the scribe and Sean would teach me everything there is inside the Torah in the oral traditions, in the written traditions so that I would understand everything there is inside there. And this was really good. And they would choose a rabbi to do this. The third group was that 12 year old boys would choose a rabbi and become a disciple of this rabbi. The Apostle Paul did this. He had a rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, rabbis are like pastors today, and scribes are like professors, theologians today, right? So, the keynote here that you need to remember is that when you're 12, you're no longer a child. And all the 12 year olds are like, yeah, that was 2,000 years ago. Today, you have to be like 94 before you're no longer a child. Uh, so, because you actually have to be mature. All right, so. So the story in the temple is really simple. They relied on the extended family, because once you're 12, you know, you're you're kind of like you're growing up, you're responsible. So they relied on the extended family to kind of take care of you. You kind of like to roam the land yourself. So Mary and Joseph, they have other kids, probably four of the Jesus brothers and sisters. And so they're rolling with all of them and they're already worried about this until they suddenly realize they don't have Jesus. And they don't know where he is, and nobody does. Then they rush back to find him, and they're searching for him, and they find him in the temple. So let's go to the story found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, page 950. Luke chapter 2. Verses 46 to 51. Page 950, it's in the pew Bibles in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 to 51. Now it says this. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. All right, here we go. Duplo level. Somebody said this to me uh, yesterday. and said, if you mention Duplo Technic one more time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip out. And I said, really? They said, yeah, everybody knows this, we know it. I said, no, I mentioned the Duplo Technic thing to one of my elders two weeks ago, and they said, what's that? I was like, what's that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna strangle you. And I said, seriously? I've been talking about this since September. And I'm like, they don't know. I said, there are people who don't know. So I calmed down. There is a sheet over there. <laughs> and if you wanna know the difference, how to study the Bible, Duplo Technic, great little example over there. So Duplo level. Mom is worried about a child, she looks for him. Three days they search, the police are involved, Jesus responds, mom says, I've been looking for you. He says, but mom, I'm here in the temple, I'm doing my business here, I'm sent for this purpose. He says, all right, I submit to you, that's good. I went home with mom and dad, everything's cool. Mom's like, I wrote it down in my journal. I like that, I'm happy. Duplo, everybody's good, nice story, you can read it to your kids, everybody's good. You will obey mom and dad from now on. All right, great bedtime story. And it's all good because that's a great story and it has powerful metaphors inside there. Now, technique level, you ready for this? Three days, three days. Don't forget the three days. The three days are deeply significant because Mary and Joseph, you searched for three days. And Jesus said, I never left. I wasn't lost. I knew where you were and I was doing my father's business, right? And when's the next time that you're going to be searching for me for three days? The cross to the resurrection. You're going to be searching for me too. And get this, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to say, why were you looking for me? And then I'm going to meet you on John 20, and I'm going to say the same thing. Who are you looking for? I'm going to repeat the same question I did with you in the temple. I'm going to repeat it on resurrection morning. I'm gonna say the same thing. What are you looking for? I'm on my business. I'm doing the thing that God called me to do. I'm doing this. So you can imagine that she remembered all of this. Resurrection morning. You can imagine that she sat down after this and she said, oh my goodness, this is so true. And get this, female preachers, all the female preachers, they are the ones who heard the message. They're the ones who went and told everybody. So now imagine this. After the ascension, after Jesus resurrects, after he goes to heaven, Mary and all these disciples are sitting down, they're sitting down and they're talking about the stories and saying, man, do you remember how many times Jesus kept on mentioning three? Yeah, I know. How many times, yeah, he just kept on mentioning. Do you remember that time we were looking for him? Three days we were searching. I know, so funny, I was so stressed. And I know, and he had everything in control. I know. I was panicking, and he was in control. And then the cross, he died. Three days, I was panicking. I know he had everything in control. He even said the same thing to me to trigger my memory that I reminded me that when he was 12 years old, that he knew he was on his father's business. And remember this, this was the first time he had ever been to the temple. The first time that he got to be in the building where he was going to start his ministry. The first time that he got to think about these are the people he's going to try to to turn and help them to nudge them. I mean, this is what he was on about. I'm doing my purpose here. What is our purpose? To trust our Savior. That's what we're supposed to do. This Christmas, in the chaos, in the craziness. I got people who are wondering about whether they're going to make it through their jobs. Whatever's going on in your life, trust your Savior. Question number two How do we hear the mission that Jesus has called us as a church to? How do we hear the mission? This again is one of those really interesting stories, another encounter that happens inside here. And again, if you just read this story, Without understanding the context, you just read it with one of those stories. You, you kind of miss some of the depth and some of the beauty inside of this. So this story is found in John chapter 2, page 983. So turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, page 983 in your Bibles. And this is a famous story, and it has so much depth to it. I mean, you could spend days on this particular passage here. But I'm going to read just the first five verses. And I don't want you to lose this page because I'm going to come back to it. Don't lose this text. Um, Just bookmark it for a second. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I know when I read the first line here, you're going to like, I know what he's going to say. On the third day. I know he's going to talk about the third day. I will not talk about the third day. All right? Clue. All right. On the third day, (laughs) there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Very generous. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, (laughs) this is the interesting thing about this. What happens is this, is that they end up filling, right, these these huge purification jars, and it ends up overflowing with water, and then it ends up turning into this incredible wine. So everybody thinks the story is about how the human side of Jesus gets upset with his mother, right? They're like, see, he's like one of those, you know, pushy moments there. It's like a teenager getting angry with his mom. That's what's happening here. It's like mom says, hey, I need you to, I need you to clean the microwave. Mom! not my mission. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, your mission, not my mission. I mean, dad made the mess in the microwave. He didn't put the lid. I need you to do that. And that's what you feel like the story's about, right? It's like one of these kind of like moments where they're just pushing back and forth. But you have to start to compare the style of conversation that Jesus is having and see where they take place elsewhere in the Bible. Does Jesus ever talk in this tone like this anywhere else? Sure enough, he does, with other people. In John chapter 11, uh, they come to him and say, hey, uh, Lazarus is sick. And he's like, yeah, good. We're staying here. All right. Oh, okay. Uh, they come to him in John chapter 7. We should go to the festival of booths. And Jesus is like, no, not going. And then he's like, we're going secretly. I mean, he's just like, he, he just does these things. And you're thinking, is it that Jesus is kind of like schizophrenic? Is he, does he not know what he's doing? Does he not understand this? It's because... Jesus is processing his mission with God the Father. He's not making a decision just on a human inclination. He's saying, is this the will of God? Because even in John chapter two, he says, my hour has not yet come unless it is the will of God. So if it is his mission, he will do it because Jesus is the real bridegroom at the wedding feast, not this other guy here. Get this, Jesus is divine, that does produce the wine, right? And the vine can only produce wine if it has water, because water is a source to feed it, right? So Jesus doesn't produce a small blessing. He produces 150 to 180 gallons of it. There is never a shortage when Jesus blesses, which is pretty darn amazing, right? Of course, go back to John and see what happens here, because this is what's amazing about Mary, and what Mary says about Jesus. She says this, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there's one other place in the gospels where this idea comes up again. I know I need you to, in my Bible, I wrote this down and I write a cross reference and and I mark it up and I do a cross reference. So you've got to do the same thing. It's kind of fun. Mark chapter nine, verse seven. I'm not gonna even tell you what it is, you're just gonna turn there, and then you're like, what, that's where it is? Yep, Mark chapter nine, verse seven. Mark chapter nine, verse seven, page 936. Do whatever he tells you. And there's one other instance in the Gospels where you have a similar phrase, a similar unction, a similar call. Moses and Elijah are present at this point. The disciples are there on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Do whatever he tells you, listen to him. Isn't that good? Listen to him, because when you listen to him, you're listening to God. And when you're listening to God, you're doing whatever he tells you to do. What Mary was saying is, do whatever he says. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to follow God. If you want to understand the mission, if you want to know what we're doing, it should be in line with God. So if the church is not in line with God, it will not work. If we are in the mission with God, it will work. Do what he says by listening to him. Question number three, do we have to wait until we get to heaven for our family to function again. <laughs> Do we have to wait until we get to heaven for our family to function again? Because I know Christmas is kind of like this uh, incredible gathering time of families again and it's kind of difficult. In the daily walk this week, I shared with you that it was while Jesus hung on the cross, right? And he looked down at the crowd and he pulled together everybody. There was this tension from the very beginning of his ministry because Jesus didn't choose any of his relatives. This was very not like the people at the time. Uh, he chose disciples, and he didn't choose any of his relatives. What he did is he upset some of his family members. And there's lots of accounts in the Gospels where it talks about his family members would turn up and say, they want to speak to you. They're outside. <laughs> like, okay. And Jesus would say, well, my family's all inside here. I don't think there's any problems going on. And it would say that, uh, that your brothers are outside, and they're upset about what you're doing inside town here. And they were all concerned about this. James, one of Jesus' brothers, didn't even believe him until after the resurrection, and then wrote the great epistle of James, the great letter of James, which is a fantastic letter inside there. So, while on the cross, Jesus looks down at Mary, his mother. He looks at his youngest disciple, John, and he brings them together while on the cross. He tells his mom, see that young guy there, that disciple of mine? You need to take him under your wings. You need to love him like you loved me. You need to grow him. You need to hold him accountable. Yes, he's a son of thunder, but I need you to look after him. And then he turns to John, the young disciple, says, you know, that woman there, that mother, that's my mother. I've cared for her since my father Joseph died. I'm the one who's been financially responsible for her. And I need you to take care of her now. She's been the one who's handling all the rebuke from everybody. I need you to be able to handle all this. And while she's going to go through an incredible hard weekend this weekend, you will be her son to her and you will look after her and you need to take her home. And he brings them together. You need to protect her and love her and defend her because at the cross, at the foot of the cross, he brings both the disciples and his physical family together. He says, we are united together. And then Sunday morning, Sunday morning, when they find the tomb empty, when they go to meet Jesus resurrected, he tells Mary and he tells them to deliver the news. He says to them, go tell my disciples. No, he doesn't say, go tell my disciples. He says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. Welcome to the extended family of God. That's what he says now. We belong to each other. You're not just my disciples. You're my brothers and you're my sisters. So. Final question for this morning. What gift could you ever give to Jesus? Remember that from Pastor Jessica in the Kids to Life story? What gift could you ever give to Jesus? While he's dying on the cross, Jesus is taking care of everyone else. Sinner on the cross, the soldiers nailing him on the cross, the divided friends and family. He's forgiving and mending. How could we ever repay that? Hey. How could we ever repay that? When he resurrected, he claimed everyone as his family. Those who denied him, he brought them in. How could we ever, ever repay that? The difficulty is that the response is the value you have that you place on it, and it's different to every person. There is no way that I could say, do this, and you will show that you truly value what God has done in your life, because it's different for every single person. On Thursday, I was in Vale, and I was visiting some of our members and partners who live in Vale. And while I was there, I, uh, I uh, got to meet uh, Julian Brad. And Julian Brad owns uh, an art gallery, an antique art gallery in Vale. So if you're ever in Vale, you have to go visit their antique art gallery. Uh, it's on Edward Street. It's right there next to Austria House. So I walk into that place and it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's, a, it's an eclectic collection of art. It's fantastic. And as I'm walking around and seeing all these pieces and they, they're explaining them, uh, the, the various pieces, you know, it's from metalwork and paintings and furniture and, and hats from the 1700s. I am mean, just great, great pieces. They evoke certain emotions. I mean, there were certain pieces that I just like, I just stood and I was mesmerized. I was like, I looked at it, I was like, I couldn't believe just how it caught my attention. I looked at some of the pieces and and the price tags were actually on these pieces, which is amazing. And I I realized that two of those items, if I put them in the trunk of my car, they actually cost more than my house. I was like, oh, wow. My house is bigger than they, they fit in my car. It was weird, right? Now, the thing is this, is that people will pay for that, right, because they value it. They value it. It means something to them. It doesn't mean something to everybody, but to them, it speaks to them. From the right angle, from the right moment, from the point of life in their history, that piece of art speaks to their soul. It touches them where they are, and they will give up everything inside there. So the value of art is different to every person. And I think that we have to ask ourselves about church. The church means something different to every single person. It is not the same for each of us. So when I ask you to consider, you know, with this one hour ministry commitment that you have, what is the one hour that you're going to give to the church, or what is the area that you're going to give as a gift to the church, it's different for every single person. Some people are gonna say to themselves, one hour? Huh, I give 20, 30 hours a week to the church. What's one hour? Some people are gonna say, one hour? That's more than what I do right now. I could do one hour. Some people are gonna say, I could give a dollar. I could give a lot, lot more than that. Some people are gonna say, I give nothing right now, but I'm gonna give right now. It differs for every single person. What you have to work out is, not how do you repay that, right? What you have to work out is, why do you do that, right? Because it's not just, that you're gonna do it, is that you give it out of honesty. You give because you want to belong and because you do belong, you want to be able to receive and you want to be able to share back with it as well. I gave you a challenge in the last two weeks. The first challenge was to be peace and make more peace. And last week I said, I need you to seek Jesus. Well, this week, and this is a really hard challenge. It is a really, really hard challenge. I want you to actually be a blessing. <laughs> I want you to be a blessing in somebody else's life. I want you to be a blessing in um, your marriage. I want you to be a blessing in your family. I want to be a blessing in your community. I want you to be a blessing in people's lives. Now, it's a tall order, because that means it's not about you. <laughs> I want you to go and bless somebody this week. I want you to ask God to give you the strength and the clarity in mind so you may bless somebody else.